This is Our American Stories. When you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment. And we do that about people who are about to die, eulogies, and death's a part of life. And sometimes we got to go there. And today we have a contributor reading his article entitled, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. And the writing comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and a university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. As he sat thinking of what his wife's friend was going through, he thought of what his own mother went through when his father died. When he thought of his friend's kids, he remembered what it was like when he lost his dad. He wrote it down and sent it to the Boston Globe, and when they accepted it, he sent the check they gave him to his wife's best friend. When Reader's Digest published it, he sent her that money too. Here is Willie reading the story. Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems, but once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash, mountains in whatever direction I looked, and awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. 
I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed still moves me these decades later. He told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form, on my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way, his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories, and we now bring you the story of an extraordinary woman who was an inspiration not only for women of color, but an inspiration to all who knew her name, Dr. Olivia Hooker. Here's Stacey Edwards with her story. Ten years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus, and 18 years before Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech, Olivia Hooker became the first African-American woman to join the U.S. Coast Guard. 1945, I joined. March the 9th was the day we went on duty. We had been campaigning for that privilege, but nobody joined. I kept watching the newspapers, and I thought to campaign for certain civil rights and then not use them, to me, is very futile, and somebody ought to join up. Born in Muskegee, Oklahoma, Olivia was just seven years old when her house was ransacked and burned by members of the KKK during the Tulsa race riots of 1921, while her and her three siblings hid under a table. There were times when I didn't know about prejudice because the only people that I had seen who were not African-American were people who wanted to sell things to my father. And they brought presents for the children and listened to my sister play Bach and all kinds of things to show how interested they were. So I was totally surprised when the disaster happened. It wasn't a riot. We were really the victims. But... It took 80 years before we got a, an apology from the mayor of Tulsa, and they admitted that we were the victims. Of course, we got no monetary uh, reimbursement, but at least they apologized after 80 years. After the riots, her family moved to Columbus, Ohio, where she earned her Bachelor of Arts in 1937 from Ohio State University. While at OSU, she joined the Delta Sigma Theta sorority where she advocated for African-American women to be admitted to the U.S. Navy. You see, there were no uh, people of our race in the Navy, not no girls. We had been campaigning for that privilege, but nobody joined. I kept watching the newspapers, and I thought to campaign for certain civil rights and then not use them, to me, is very futile and somebody ought to join up after they campaign. So I thought, well, if I go and I survive, maybe someone else will come. Although I had applied for the Navy and they kept writing back saying, there is a technicality. They didn't tell me what the technicality was. So I said, well, let me try the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard recruiter was just so welcoming. She wanted to be the first one to enroll an African-American. Miss Hooker enlisted with the U.S. Coast Guard in February 1945. On March 9th, she went to basic training in Brooklyn, New York. When they told us to go to basic training, 
I took a trunk with all my luxuries in it. I didn't know. The seven girls, other girls that went when I went, all had duffel bags. Everything was new to me. They get you up at five o'clock in the morning and you do exercises for an hour before you went to breakfast. And then, of course, you had to polish your floor, even though it didn't need polishing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, they thought of chores for you. We went to Manhattan Beach training station and we stayed there six and nine, 15 weeks, I think. And then when I graduated from Yeoman School, I was sent to Boston. The head of the Yeoman School, Lieutenant Isley, had written to all of the Coast Guard stations. There were 11 districts. And the only one who answered yes, they would take an African-American was Admiral Derby in Boston. While in Boston, Olivia earned the rank of Yeoman Second Class in the Coast Guard Women's Reserve, where she served until her unit was disbanded in 1946. By 1947, after receiving her master's, Hooker moved upstate to work in the mental health department of a woman's correctional facility. Many women in this facility were considered to have severe learning disabilities by staff. Hooker felt they were more capable than given credit and re-evaluated them and helped the women to pursue better education and jobs, a passion she inherited from her mother. My mother was a real suffragist. I mean, she was a campaigner for the women's vote. And uh, so I guess I inherited some of that. And I want to see equal pay for equal positions. And naturally, I'm trying to vote for people who believe that equal pay for equal positions should be the right of every person. By 1961, Olivia Hooker became Dr. Olivia Hooker when she earned her Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Rochester. In 1963, she joined Fordham University as a senior clinical lecturer. Eventually, she served as an associate professor until 1985, but it was her experience in the U.S. Coast Guard where Dr. Hooker realized her full potential. I didn't know many people that were not of my hue, and it was good for me to mix with other people and find out you know, how they thought and what they were like. It taught me a lot about order and uh, priorities. But I would like to see more of us realizing, you know, that our country needs us. And I'd like to see more uh, girls consider spending some time in the military if they don't have a job at all and they're, they have ambition and they don't know what heights they might reach. It's really nice to have people with different points of view and different kinds of upbringing, and uh, the world would really prosper from more of that. After retiring at the age of 87, she joined the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary at the age of 95. 
She received a presidential citation in 2011 and was inducted into the New York State Senate Veterans Hall of Fame. On November 21, 2018, she died of natural causes in her home in White Plains, New York, at the age of 103. Although she was a practicing Methodist, Dr. Olivia Hooker found inspiration in the story of St. Francis. St. Francis was a terrible boy. I mean, he did everything wrong to his family. And so if St. Francis could become St. Francis after all the things he did as a boy, I have faith that other people can change and can see the right path and not take the path less traveled. My favorite hymn, one of them, is Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, peaceful and still. And I I, I was just fond of that, thinking of the creator being the potter and I being the clay. (laughs) To me, that was important. For our American Stories, I'm Stacey Edwards. And great job on that, Stacey. And what a unique voice. And by the way, if you have suggestions for stories, send them to us. There's so much out there in the world and your collective wisdom, well, we can't match it. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. A link to some audio or video, anything at all, a story that you just saw in your local paper. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Dr. Olivia Hooker's story here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about music. One of our favorite recurring segments is the story of a song. We've done all kinds. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up there on the topic section. I think we got about 20, everything from the doors to country music. One of my favorites, There Goes My Life, the story of Kenny Chesney's hit. But there are so many from every musical idiom. Go to ouramericannetwork.org story of a song. And what we were listening to as we bumped in was Christina Aguilera's Candyman, which was written by our next storyteller, Linda Perry. According to Aguilera and Perry, the song was a tribute to the Andrews Sisters, iconic World War II song recorded in 1941, the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B. Ever wonder how a chart-topping hit single is made? 
Well, here's Greg Hengler. Most of our story of a songs have been based on timeless and relatively deep songs. What we are about to do now is tell the story of a song that falls into, let's say, a less profound category. To tell this story is former lead singer and songwriter of the early 90s rock group, Four Non Blondes, Linda Perry. Remember them? Linda Perry left the band in 1994, started two record labels, and began writing and producing hit songs for the likes of Gwen Stefani, Adele, Alicia Keys, and Christina Aguilera. Here she is to tell the story of how one of her hit singles was created. Perry said that the process of making the song was so unlike me. According to her, she was going through a weird phase during which she wanted to learn how to program drums. Here's Linda Perry. I'm very, you know, I'm always interested in things. And so, like, I, I called up a friend. I'm like, what's that sound out there right now that you're hearing on the radio and stuff? And they're like, oh, you got to get a Triton. It's a, called a Triton keyboard. I'm like, a Triton keyboard. All right. And then what? what's that sound on the drums? Like, what's that thing? It's obviously not real drums, but what's that? Oh, those are MPCs. You get these programs, and there are programmed sounds already, and you can create your own, and you just put it in. It loads these sounds, and you got kick snares. I'm like, MPC, you know? I'm like, and then what would be like if you could get like a, a, a you know, like a program of some sort that had like all different types of sounds? What would that be? Oh, that would be the rolling blah, 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 expansion thing that has all these cards. Okay, great, thanks. You know, and so I go to Guitar Center and I buy all these things. I come back, I plug it all in, my MPC, my, my whatever Triton. And so I'm like, okay, all right, all right, what does this thing do? Okay, let me, all right, well, let me start with the beat. Basic enough, all right, loop that down, okay. All right, I need a bass part that goes with that, and I can't find a bass sound, so I'm like, all right, let me just pick up my real bass for right now until I figure out with that. So I pick up my real bass, just sub it out. Boom, 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 boom. Do, 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 boom, boom, boom. All right, okay, cool, that's cool, all right. Oh, what's this thing do? And I'm opening up all the sound. Clav, you know, this, you know, horns, and I just start adding all these things. I mean, everything. I mean, I have harpsichord, clav, horns, I don't know what that sound is. I mean, just there's so many sounds going on, and I just add it all. Little percussions. Oh, percussions. Just like never in a million years. Percussions in here? And now I'm just fascinated, and I'm just having a good time. All right, okay, I need Wawa, and this doesn't have Wawa. Okay, I can get my guitar, put other Wawa. All right. All right, now I need some kind of vocal, you know, and then I pick up my bullet microphone because I, I know I don't want to sound like Linda. This is a character. So I pull up a harmonica microphone, run it through this compressor, compress the hell of it. I'm like, okay, what is this song? You know, okay, now I'm going to do something Linda never does. Think, pre-think of lyrics, pre-think of a concept, you know, never done that before. So I'm like, okay. I'm going to think of every cliche I can think of. 
And then I just started singing the song about, okay, I'm coming up, so you better get this part. And all the lyrics just started, you know, pull up to the bumper rub in my Mercedes Benz, you know, like just like joking and laughing as, and I'm like writing this stuff down as I'm singing. And then I record it. Literally, this all took place in a matter of 15 to 20 minutes, okay? 15 to 20 minutes. And then I'm done. It's already pre-mixed because everything is just all right there. I mean, you don't have to do much, you know, with that kind of stuff. I call up my manager. I play it to her on the phone, and she's all, what's that? I go, I just wrote a dance hit, and I knew it was a hit, you know. And she's like, well, you can't do it. I'm like, no, it's not for me. It's got to be for somebody else. Who do we think of, you know? And I'm thinking Madonna. I'm thinking, you know, we got to get it to whatever and life is just a beautiful thing. Life is just, it's, this is, again, the best thing I can just tell in general that has nothing to do with what you're talking about in this story, but life just wants to give. It wants to give you gifts. It has so many gifts to give you, but you just have to be open to receive them. Because once you're open, once you put your hand out, life is gonna give you a gift. A week later, this crazy girl calls me, leaving this radical message on my machine. It sounds like a nut, you know, like, I don't know what this girl's going on. Are you Linda from Four Non Blonde? I think she's a fan. It sounds like, who is this? My name is Pink, you know, I'm whatever. And I start asking, do you know Pink? Oh yeah, this girl, she's a white chick R&B girl, pink hair. And then this video comes on and I'm seeing this, there you go, bling, bling, ching, ching. And I'm like, no, this girl, she's got the wrong girl. Like she wants to write with me or wants me to sing on her album. That's it. And when I met her, I was like, it was like we connected, bam. And then I played her, get the party started. I gave it to her. And I think it was two days later, she called me back or the L.A. Reed called my manager or something like that and said, we got our first single. Is Linda interested in writing some more with her? Get the Party Started was released November 2001 as the lead single to her album Misunderstood and peaked at number one on the American charts. It became a worldwide hit, reaching number one in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, Romania, and Spain. In 2002, Pink headlined a tour of America, Europe, and Australia, the Party Tour, as well as becoming a supporting act for Lenny Kravitz's American Tour. Thanks to this single, Pink was named the top female Billboard 200 artist of 2002. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. And what a great story. Greg Hengler is always digging them out for us. And the story of his song, very different than the rest of our stories of this song, the way the song got put together. I remember when this song came out and the girls would just rush to the dance floor. I never figured out why women rush to some songs and not others. Guys don't generally rush out onto the dance floor. They follow, and they follow the lead and do their best, I think, most of us to just uh, come along and move along and dance along. But great storytelling as always, Greg. And by the way, the next time anyone talks to you about the Constitution or the founders, and it seems so ephemeral to you, a discussion about it, remember it was Benjamin Franklin during the constitutional debates who insisted 
that property rights and intellectual property rights be protected. And so we had both of them protected. Article 1, the patent. And so all of our art spring from this. All of the ideas of all the storytellers that we feature, the writers, the artists, everything. Not just products, folks. Ideas protected by our founding fathers and the Constitution. None of American culture possible without it exporting it to the world. The story of a song, the story of let's get the party started here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and it's National Police Week all week this week. And it's been happening in this country since 1962, and not nearly enough folks in the media cover this. We do, and we honor all of our first responders in this country, and of course our men and women serving in uniform all around the world. And we particularly pay homage to the people who've paid the ultimate price for their service. In late July 2018 in Kent, Washington, a disastrous combination of 15 and 16-year-olds, alcohol and guns, resulted in a teenager leading the police on a high-speed chase hitting speeds of 95 miles per hour at night. Police officer Diego Moreno got in front of the fleeing truck and laid down spike strips to stop the dangerous chase. After the speeding truck spun out of control, Moreno was accidentally struck and killed by a pursuing police vehicle. A week later, thousands from across the country gathered to celebrate Marino's life, and the procession stretched for over six miles. His widow wanted everyone to see her goofy, big-hearted husband as she did. I'm Shelly, Diego's wife. From what you know about Diego and the way we have honored him today, it's easy for you to see that Diego loved police work. But there's one thing Diego loved more, and that was being a daddy. Although it was police work that ultimately took Diego from us, it was police work that allowed him to be the father that he was while he was here. Diego worked late swing, which rewarded him with daytime daddy shift. My phone used to ding every morning at work, and I would take it out and find multiple Instagram messages of riotous singing and dancing in the car while waiting in the parking lot for school to start. Then, without complaint of his five hours of sleep, he would walk our daughter to class and stand in line with her until he saw her safely in the classroom. Then 40 minutes later, my phone would ding again as the process started all over again at preschool. To say he was protective was an understatement and he loved his children fiercely. When Diego's boots were unlaced for the final time, more evidence of fatherhood excellence was found. A fresh pedicure, in primary blue. Diego had taken our daughter for petties just last week and she got to choose his color. He was impressed that the lacquer made them so shiny. Diego's childish enthusiasm for life was contagious. When playing sidewalk chalk, he wouldn't just draw with the kids. 
he'd help them make our dog Wally into a pink striped zebra. And this week, when many of you stopped by, you asked, what is wrong with your dog? And I replied with the standard answer you all know so well, eh, Diego. And no more explanation was necessary. Diego's ability to play was unmatched. He was loud and wild and persistent. Without a doubt, he was my man-child, and he was well-loved for it. A few months ago, he and our son went to get a fresh cut with his cherished hairdresser, who I had bribed on many occasions to make a mistake on his hair. Afterward, as a reward for a job well done in the chair, he took our son to pick out a new toy, a three-foot Nerf sniper rifle with a six-round magazine capacity and multiple magazines. It has been open season on me ever since, with Diego as their platoon leader. I now have a four-year-old with a two-second reload time and a daughter that can apply a tourniquet. <laughs> a speech about Diego would be incomplete without mentioning his affinity for food. My skinny, fat kid Diego has passed this tradition on to his children. That's my daughter's sushi set Barbie stuff down there. Uh, whether it was Sushi Wednesday or Taco Tuesday and our Barbie house things that matched. Along with his love of food was his love for adventure and food. And last summer on our trip to Spain, our food bill was almost double the cost of his plane ticket. <laughs> our children are young and their future memories of their father will be few and faded. But Diego left so much of his larger-than-life character with all of you and I ask that in the coming months and years that you join me in helping them remember. And again, that was, that was Diego's bride. Next up, one of the people who will help the Moreno kids remember their dad, and that's his longtime police partner, who recently switched uniforms to become a firefighter. My name is Matt Mullenix. I was a city of Kent police officer for eight years, and I got hired about the same time Diego did. And I can hear his voice now saying, what the hell is a firefighter doing talking at my service? <laughs> we talked about this day coming, if it ever came. And Diego always said, I don't want you guys sitting in a chair staring at the corner. I want you guys to celebrate. My first impression of Diego was made before I even met him. I had just graduated the police academy myself. I'd just been on the street for a couple of months and I heard about this hard charger, this young guy that we just hired, very promising prospect. Halfway through the academy, he blew his knee out. And that's a career ender a lot of the time. I've done it. And instead of having surgery to fix his knee and finishing the academy later like a normal person would do, Diego slapped a knee brace on his leg and finished the rest of his academy with a blown out knee completing all the physical and academic requirements. And then he got his knee fixed. That was my first impression of a man that I am honored to call my best friend. Who was a coworker, good Lord. Uh, when Diego healed up, we were assigned to the same beat and we were beat partners for many, many years. Diego lived his life at a thousand miles an hour with such a fierce intensity I've never seen anything like it. I don't know how he did it. He would walk into the break room at work, and whether you knew this man for 10 years or 10 seconds, he would immediately infect everyone in that room with that energy. 
He'd take a lap around the break room, he'd crack a joke, sit on someone's lap, make them extremely uncomfortable. He'd inhale a burrito or a donut as fast as humanly possible. And then one of us would get dispatched to a call. And through his mouthfuls of carne asada and delicious pastry, he, and out on top of that his Venezuelan accent, which made it difficult to understand him in the first place, he would key up his radio. His call sign was 2 King 5 6. He'd key up his radio and say, 2 King 5 6. That unit is about to secure. We're about to go home. I've got it. Show me en route. And then he'd do a little dance and he'd go out of the room and he'd go to the call. That's who Diego was as a co-worker to me and to so many of us. As a friend, when Diego and I began to hang out more outside of work, we'd text each other, hey, what are you doing right now? What are you doing later today? What are you doing tomorrow, this weekend? Whenever he texted me first, the message always began with a hey and then a word that <laughs> rhymed with SWAT. And after about the 30th or 40th time that he called me that, I said, hey, is there anything wrong with you saying, what's up, buddy? How's your day going? What are you up to? And it seemed like before I'd even sent that message, he had responded with about four or five more very creative ways of using that same term. And so I thought, you know, this is just Diego. This is a term of endearment. And I thought that for many years until last week when I was reminiscing with some very close friends and coworkers, and I just mentioned, you know, I always thought it was funny how Diego would call me that name or that word, and I'm sure he called you the same thing, and everybody got me a really weird look. I said, no, Matt. <laughs> Diego liked us. <laughs> I think you were a special case. And even now, buddy, after you're gone, you're still making me feel special. As a father, Diego and Shelly were kind enough to allow me to be a part of Peyton and Adrian's lives pretty much since they were born. I was always in awe on how he was able to amplify that intense and fierce energy that he lived his life with, whether it was work or play, and by a thousandfold with Shelly and the kids, put that energy back into them. I don't have kids of my own, but I always told myself that if I ever had a kid, if I could be half the dad Diego was, I would be a resounding success. And maybe I set the bar a little high for myself even at half, but that's the kind of dad Diego was. So I'll close with this. Diego, I'm now talking directly to you. You always had our backs, buddy. Whether we knew we needed a back or not, we'd turn around and there you were. And I make this promise to you and to you, Shelley, that the people who are the most important to you in this world, your family, will want for nothing, ever. Until my dying breath, I promise you both that. And just for you, buddy, I've got one last radio transition in me as a cop. <sighs> two King 5-4 to Two King 5-6. I know you're ready to secure and you're going home.
You can clear. We've got this. And my goodness, it doesn't get more beautiful than that, folks. And you don't hear men loving on men that way in public. You always had our backs, buddy. And we can count, if we're lucky, a few people in our lives who always have our back. We just heard from a bride and a partner. National Police Week. Officer Diego Moreno of the Kent Police Department in Washington State. This is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, from business to history, science, and your stories, and send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and our team will listen to them, and we'll produce them, and we'll send them back out at you. You are the hour in Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about redemption, and today we have Chris Buckley's story a man who's lived a life filled with hate and anger. Chris Buckley's life began with an absent father. You know, him and my mom would fight a lot. And I, I often refer to my, my childhood as like a, like a constant revolving door of drunken bar fights that I was like a fly on the wall to. When I was young, I, I was angry at the fact that, you know, like all the other kids... You know, they, they had a dad. I, I didn't have that. My dad would come home drunk maybe once every week or so, pass out on the couch, and before he'd leave out the next day, like, I would get my, my you know, regular whipping. I remember the first time I played football, my grandma came. You know, like, everybody's dads were out there, like, cheering for their kid, and, and you know, I had my... My 60-year-old grandma was out there doing a puzzle book because she had no interest in football. She was just there because she loved me. Fishing trips seemed like a chore to him. He didn't get into the fact that he was with me. He wanted to go and drink beer with his buddies. Um, my dad eventually sobered up, but by that time the resentment was there. So it just like this angry relationship where it was just like that you could cut tension with a knife anytime we were in the same room. I was angry at my childhood. Uh, you know, I went through some things with a very close family member, and you know, I don't, I don't want to get into that too much. But you know, it really it messed with me. But you know, there's just there was there's so many little things that at the time, you know, it was just you just shut them out, and then as you get older, you realize that you know they didn't go away. You know, you need to deal with them, and and you know, it was just it was fear of dealing with those. It was anger of the things that I was subjected to. Maybe I was angry that I didn't have control over it. I was just a very angry person, and it, and it stemmed from early in my childhood. Our traumas can start at a very young age. And if we do not learn to deal with those, they never really go away. 
They can affect us no matter how hard we try to shove them down. So, how did Chris deal with all his traumas? And where is he at with that now? It's been a tumultuous journey filled with hate, anger, and bitterness. But also, one of love, forgiveness, and an unexpected friendship. Chris was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, before moving to Southern Ohio to a town called MacArthur. I went to high school there, and uh, by that point, I was I was really resentful. Um, I started getting in trouble a lot, and I remember one of the recruiters from the army came to my school, and uh, it was really more of a an attempt for me to just get out of class for the day, <laughs> and. Uh, I went and took the ASVAB test, and I, I scored, you know, pretty good on it. You know, he, he started pursuing me pretty hard after that, and, you know, I looked at it as a way to get out. I was like, you know, they take care of everything, school, room and board, pay. I mean, really, all I got to do is just show up, and uh, I'm taken care of. So, so I joined the Army, and, you know, 13 years of my life was spent doing that. Um, that was in 2000 when I joined. You know, the military indoctrinates you for whatever fight you're involved in at the time. Obviously, we were engaged in the war on terror and focused on, on you know, targeting people of Muslim ethnicity. You know, I never shot at a paper target or, or interrogated a an actor that wasn't, you know, a traditional Muslim. With uh, the garb and, and, you know, just everything about it, just reeked of of attack and and prejudiceness you know you just automatically assume so i do this for 13 years i get deployed overseas i've been to afghanistan i've been to iraq i've got three deployments under my belt um and somewhere along the lines i guess that seed was just was planted that i'm supposed to hate these people um on october 31st of 2008 uh in Afghanistan, I lost a very close comrade of mine, Daniel Wallace. Um, we were we were thick as thieves, man. We from the day one at basic training, we just ended up everywhere together, and and we were inseparable. I started to to bond with him uh, because he was just always that laid back and cool guy that could just make everything seem okay. When when he was you know killed in action, it was. It was like there was an emptiness in my life and in my heart that I could never feel. And it just, there was an anger that took place. Um, it was probably the deepest anger that I've ever felt in my life. Uh, I was alone. I, I just, uh, it really traumatized me. Um, after that, you know, I, I was, you know, I completed that tour of duty. I, I've been blown up. I've had, uh, you know, several injuries and concussions, uh, shrapnel, um, just just a lot of you know crappy stuff that happens but you know we sign up for these things when we're in the military it's it's what we put ourselves at risk for and we know the risk when we sign up i come home and i uh stayed with the national guard for about another year and during that year is when i met my wife i was in jackson kentucky uh state active duty mission there was a really bad flood in 2009 uh we we're tasked with, you know, providing water, rations, uh, emergency relief, and, and rescues and things of that nature. On the way home from that mission, I wrecked a Humvee and broke my back. Uh, seven rolls total, six barrel rolls and one end of end. Over end. 
and that was my induction to opiate painkillers. And when we come back, we continue the story of Chris Buckley. From hatred and anger to redemption and love. His story after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Chris Buckley's story. Chris had served as a veteran, and when he came back from deployment in Iraq and Afghanistan, he got in a severe accident that ended with him becoming addicted to painkillers. We pick up where we last left off. I started abusing painkillers pretty regularly after that, and eventually it just upgraded, you know, with the alcohol to methamphetamines. So five years of my life from that point was spent just the worst kind of junkie addict you could ever imagine. I, I tried to remain like completely focused on what was going on in my in my country. It was, uh, I guess, uh, the patriotism in me, I guess. I wanted to know what was going on. And I started noticing that there was a lot of, you, you have to pick a side. You have to choose if you're a Republican or a Democrat, a liberal, a conservative. You know, it's just there's so many choices. Everything is a choice in this country, and you're forced to pick. And if you don't pick the side that somebody wants, well, then they're gonna they're gonna attack you, and you're gonna become the the, the victim, or you're gonna become the the target. So uh, I, I started getting angry, and and the anger from Wallace, anger from my past, from my childhood, everything just resonated into this ridiculous decision to join the Ku Klux Klan. With my military training and and. The, the things of that nature, uh, coupled with the access of drugs and alcohol in, in that organization, I thrived. I, I rose really quickly to the rank of Imperial Nighthawk for the state of Georgia, which was like head of security, head operations, and, and things of that nature. I started to get my, my son involved. Um, like he had his little clan robe and he would go to rallies and in cross light ceremonies as we called them. And, uh, you know, I was really just starting to indoctrinate all of this hate that I had. And I, I was ruining another innocent life, you know, and, and like my wife had to be the, the, the voice of reason in this. She, she had to stand up and say enough, you know, because I was failing in my responsibilities as a father, as a provider, as a teacher, as a husband, as a protector. It's like I was, I was sacrificing not only myself, but now I'm, I'm, you know, dragging innocent victims into this, this lifestyle of hate, you know? Chris's life had come to a head. He knew something had to give. Um, and then I met Arno Michaelis. My wife kind of set up this intervention. Um, Arno is a former white supremacist skinhead, uh, white nationalist who, uh, 
he he found his way out. Um, he's the author of a book called The Gift of Our Wounds. You know, Arno came to the house and, and you know, he, he began this daunting task of trying to, I guess, rehabilitate me. But because of the drugs, it was really hard to break through to me because I was just in this cycle of, of uh, self-worthlessness and anger and just being mad at the world and, and everybody owed me something, you know what I mean? It was, it was really exhausting. I felt like everybody in my life had betrayed me. I felt like my wife turned her back on me and stepped out, uh, you know, outside of our trust circle and, and brought in another person to, you know, I felt like I was blindsided. I felt like Arno didn't understand what I had been through. I felt like he was just talking out of his... You know, it was just, I was mad at myself for letting it get to this point to where somebody felt like they needed to give me an intervention. Um... And it's just like it, the list goes on, like all these cliche thoughts that that you know go through a person's head. And then on top of that, I had my clan uh, members that I was involved in were were you know continuously trying to fight that tug of war battle and keep me you know as as you know an asset for them. And it just it was a really a really hard struggle in my life at the time. Um, I was already having thoughts of trying to you know get out of the organization but I mean I just I guess I guess I just needed an out and um, Arno he never gave up on me he uh, he flew me to LA we did some time at Homeboy Industries spent some time with uh, Hector Verugo uh, Father Greg Boyle and uh, I think that moment it, it's, it's definitely a tie between that moment and spending some time serving the homeless at the, the midnight mission that uh, that planted that mustard seed that just made me decide that I'm not living my life the way I need to. You know, we sat down and, and one night when we were in LA, we were sitting at the counter. Arno's sober, clean and sober at this time. I'm still using pretty heavy and, and they had a, uh, a wet bar, the Airbnb that we stayed at, like it was stocked and loaded. So like I'm sitting at the counter drinking and he's like, dude, I could just see the exhaustion on you. You need to change, You just just give it up. You'll feel so much better. And like he said that, and he said exhaustion, and I was like, man, he's right. You know what, I, I am tired. This is such an exhausting lifestyle. And then just, you know, seeing that like no matter what I was doing, I, I was causing more for the problem. Like I was, I was part of the problem and not part of the solution. People in his life were helping him out, but he still had a ways to go. Around this time, there was another man, the same age as Chris, who had faced his own struggles in life. His name is Haval Muhammad Kelly. I'm a Kurdish refugee from Syria. Uh, we had to flee Syria in 1996 due to the political oppression of Kurds. My father was a lawyer and we had a you know, good middle-class family and then the police stormed our house, beat my mom. My dad was in jail. And we were lucky that he got out. And the next thing they told us, if he goes back in jail, the political oppression and we he would never come out so we fled to Turkey and next thing I know well you know we were in Germany in refugee camps around 1996 you know we applied for asylum and we weren't allowed to stay we had to extend our asylum every six months and after a few years I find out if, even if I finish high school I couldn't go to college so my dad applied to come to the US or Canada the United States accepted us to come as refugee. Unfortunately, 9-11 happened, 
we lost our dream. We felt like, you know, America's not going to take a refugee family, a Muslim refugee family after 9-11. And next thing I know, we got a call from the embassy saying, hey, you got three days to leave. We couldn't tell you about the date of the ticket because of security reasons. And we're like, oh, where are we going? It's like, oh, we're going to Atlanta, Georgia, because the weather is similar to Syria. Uh, we arrived in the United States September 25th, uh, you know, 2001, literally two weeks after 9-11 uh, in the South. You know, I was 18. My brother was 14. My mom was this four-year-old woman who never worked. You know, as a life as a refugee, you literally, like, you know, get about three to four months of rent support and some money for food. And then on your own, and my dad had a heart disease, he couldn't work. My mom couldn't find a job as a Muslim, non-English speaking woman in that time. And so I started washing dishes as a high school senior learning English, uh, you know, 40 hours a week. And I, you know, the, the interesting part, you know, I went to Georgia State after finishing high school. And then I went to Morehouse School of Medicine. And in 2000 and, uh, you know, 12, I started my internal medicine residency at an Emory University, which is literally a block away from the, you know, from the restaurant where I used to wash dishes. So, and now I'm doing my cardiology fellowship, you know, in heart medicine training at Emory. I mean, I never worked in my life. You know, we were in Syria. My father was a lawyer. You know, we had a good life. When we were in Germany, when you're on asylum and refugee status, you're not allowed to work. So I never worked in my life. I mean, I just went to school. And when I got here, I mean, I had no choice. My brother was 14. He couldn't work illegally. And my, my mom couldn't find a job. My dad was sick. So I had no choice but to support my family. So and the first job that I was offered was washing dishes. And I don't know how to wash dishes. I mean, I don't know. Like, I just learned on, on the go. But the best thing happened to me is to wash dishes. Because, you know, it was right across from Emory, and every day I see all these physicians and their scrubs come in for lunch and dinner. You know, and I was a ghost to them. I was this guy who was, like, washing their dishes. But, you know, it helped me learn English. When I was washing dishes, I had the time to learn English in my head because washing dishes really is just the most numbing, you know, brain-numbing job you can do. It's very redundant, so you don't have to focus much on the job. And, you know, and it was an inspiration for me. It's like, you know, I don't want to do this all my life, so I better study and work hard. And when we come back, we'll find out how these two lives intersect. We'll bring them together. Chris Buckley's story, Haval Muhammad Kelly's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Chris Buckley's story. We left off with Chris on his road to recovery from drugs, alcohol, and leaving the Ku Klux Klan. We also heard from another man named Haval Mohammed Kelly. Chris and Haval's paths were about to cross. Let's get back to the story. So we have this man who came into the country as a Kurdish refugee. Now, he's a doctor and volunteers with veterans. One day, he decided to go to a conference where he just so happened to meet someone. Honestly, I was attending uh, an Islamophobia uh, conference at the Carter Center, and it was all about, like, you know, the, the, the increase of Islamophobia. And I didn't know, like, you know, why I was invited, because I'm a community advocate, and I focus on solutions. And I remember when I was sitting there, this one guy with a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flop walked into the Carter Center where everyone got dressed up in nice suits. And there's like all the tattoos on his body and his chest. And I'm like, God, Lee, what is this guy doing here? But he sat next to me. And we became best friends from all these academic scholars and ambassadors and prominent people. I actually felt very close to him because it was Arnold. He's a guy who was a former white supremacist who, like, you know, was very prominent in those groups and and just left that group because of an experience he had with a Sikh person who changed his mind. And, you know, and he was now, like, when you get over his tattoos and his looks, he's, like, almost like a teddy bear personality. He's, like, the nicest human being, full of peace and love, but he came from a place full of hate and, and violence. And I was, you know, surprised. I'm like, you know, we shared our story. And he's like, you know, I'm about to go meet this guy who lives in like, you know, somewhere in Somerville, Lafayette, Georgia area. Who, you know, former KKK. He's thinking about leaving. His wife contacted me. And I'm like, man, I want to come with you, but I'm on call. I have to go like to the VA hospital and work. And he's like, oh, he's a veteran too. I was like, perfect. Let me know how I could help him or work with him. He's like, you sure you want to talk to him? I'm like... I have seen him, I mean, I'm still in my training, but I have seen a lot of things that could shock me more than dealing with a former KKK member. And, I, you know, I wasn't familiar with the KKK to that extent. He's like, oh, he's like a, a I don't know, dragon, or a, I was like, I don't know the rank, but that sounds pretty prominent to me. So, and, you know, and then the next thing you know, he connected us through Facebook messaging. You know, we started, you know, like, and then he started connecting us through the phone, and I think Chris had problems with his phone. So back and forth, I think, you know, I tried to call him, and he had some issue going on. But I was persistent. I felt like, you know, you know, maybe I should keep talking to this guy. And, you know, and the next thing you know, we start messaging each other, talking on the phone, having discussion. And I'm like, and after the first discussion, I'm like, I know you came from a very... You know, very deep, extremist place, and now you're trying to find, like, a very neutral place and, you know, trying to help yourself. And I understand where you're coming from, because I came from, you know, also from, you know, you know a life struggle. And, and, you know, let me know how I, you know, how we could be helpful with each other. And so we, and I also found that we share a common, you know, ground. We both had tremendous love for our country, America. We talked about the division going on right now. We talked about, like, you know, Republican versus Democrat. 
all these different issues. But one thing we agree on, that this the division cannot keep going because it's going to destroy this country. And we need to do something or show people if me and him could talk at least and meet up, that people could be able to do that too. And that's what it is. It was a simple friendship. A simple friendship. So Haval got connected with Chris through Arno Michaelis, the same guy that helped Chris in his intervention. Haval decided to drive up to meet Chris. And let's just say Chris was more than a little nervous. The first thing he said when he walked in the door was, hey, your blind date's here. And uh, like it was funny because I, I, my wife told me like on the way like for him to get here, I was like really nervous. I was trying to make sure that you know, like we live in a really rough part of Lafayette. I mean, it's, I was like running around trying to make sure everything was like, at least like put up and clean and like, is the house going to be okay? You know, is he going to like me? Am I going to make a fool out of myself? And she was like, Chris, Chris, you're married. And I don't think you acted this feminine about like anything. Like, you know, like, like I wish you acted like that when I was coming home from work or something. She goes, just relax. She goes, you're a great person, and, and he's going to like you. But, like, I remember my emotions were, like, really high. But, like, I was just really nervous. Like, I wanted to make a good impression because, you know, I, I just respected the fact that he was coming all the way from Atlanta just to just to come and sit and have a conversation with me. And it was it was boggling. Like, it just, why, why, is, it, why is this so important? I'm starting to realize now just why it's so important. How did Haval feel as he headed to meet Chris? A lot of people think me as a Kurdish refugee, a Muslim guy, who will be afraid of someone like Chris who was part of the KKK and hated Muslim and literally went to fight Muslim, you know, as part of the military. But then I tell people he's the one who has hate toward me. So he's more afraid of me than I'm afraid of him. I don't have any hate toward him. I mean, yeah, he's part of the KKK, and he, yes, he's like has, you know, that that group has racist views, but I don't, you know, I, I, I'm against their views, but I don't hate them. Like, you know, hate is a very strong emotion. You know, like, to me as a physician, when I walk into the room, and as a patient, I mean, as a heart, as a doctor in training cardiology, when I walk in the room and someone has chest pain, I don't ask them the religion where they prejudice of yours. My goal is to help them to fix their heart or to find a way to fix their heart so they could feel better and their family feel better. I mean, the same way I approach any human. I don't, you know, I just give them the benefit of the doubt and see maybe my interaction with them as a regular person might change their mind. And I felt like, you know, when I walk with cool. And the way I treat Chris, the way I treat people, my friends, and the way I treat people in my Kurdish culture. You know, and our instinct is to connect, you know. What was the response of those around Haval to him meeting Chris? You know, and, and most of the response were very positive. I mean, like a lot of people are like, wow, I, you really must have been courageous to talk to Chris. I'm like, no, I think Chris is the one who like has more to lose talking to me because, you know, he's putting himself in a spot of being now prejudiced toward and being hated toward. You know, like he's putting him in a spot to like create more enemies and, you know, I, you know, one thing is I heard a couple of responses from my very few, like from my, some of, you know, people like who actually a Muslim background or immigrant. He's like, oh yeah, you had it easy. Like, you know, Chris is different. Maybe Chris is one simple example. 
like you know but others don't change that easily and there's always a saying in the Bible and the Quran it says if you save one human's life it's like you save humanity but I always tell people if you could change one mind you could change the mind of humanity because think about it now Chris and his community could go back and if he hears any prejudice toward immigrants and refugees he'd be the one in his circle step up and be like hey excuse me I know you've been thinking like that before, but let me tell you about, I know of all his communities. They're very good people. They're not, they're not the people, we shouldn't, you know, be racist towards them because of some ignorance we have, because I know these people now. But that's how you change the mind of humanity. When we come back, we continue with the story of Chris Buckley and Haval Muhammad Kelly and their meeting and their flourishing as two human beings who, well, in other circumstances, would never have met, let alone come to know and love each other. Chris Buckley's story and his friend Haval's continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Chris Buckley and Haval Kelly's story. Chris was a former white supremacist that became best friends with Haval, a Muslim refugee. We return to the last part of their story. After going through some training on anger management, I've learned that hate is a secondary emotion, and it's also a byproduct of anger. And once we realized what I was angry about and the emotions that were triggering that, you know, I've I've, I've been able to work on that. Haval said something to me one time, and, and, and like I remember it, it, it'll always be something that's just a cornerstone of, of my values that I'm trying to re-establish. It, it's hard to hate something that you know, you know, and that's just one of the most simplest and deepest emotional things that anybody's ever said to me. And, and I don't think he realized how important that comment was. In, in my life changing the way it has. So, Chris was no longer angry, and he was no longer afraid of Haval. But how was it that Chris found his way out of the clan, considering he was so entrenched in it? The clan leader was like a best friend to me. Like, we, we was family. When I decided I was leaving, it just rubbed him the wrong way because that triggered the anger and the hatred for me because he felt like he was losing something of value to him. So he really stepped up efforts to retain me. Um, but after talking to Arno one night, you know, Arno suggested that I tell him, you know, hey, I'm done. About two weeks goes by, he just shows up at the house, you know, after not talking to me or, or anything. And he goes, come on, I just, we'll go get a beer or something and we'll talk about this. 
My wife begged me not to go. She was like, don't go. Just feel this is trouble. It's just something's not right. And I knew what it was. They were going to beat my ass. Been a part of it a million times. I knew what was coming. But I wasn't going to run from because I didn't want to look over my shoulder for the rest of my life and wonder, are they going to get me? You know, where are they going to come from? Um, I knew that, you know, to face it, just as I had faced going and, and requesting membership to join, you know, it was the honorable way out. I told her, I was like, ah, oh, it's going to be fine, you know, I mean, nothing bad, it's nothing I can't handle, it's just Jeremy, you know what I mean? I get in the truck, and we're driving, and we're talking, and uh, he, he's trying to, to get me, you know, to, to change my mind, and when he sees that it was just, you know, I was steadfast in my decision, I remember we, we detoured off, and uh, you know, I asked him, I was like, so where are we going, man? Like, uh, town's that way. He goes, yeah, I know. I was like, oh, so we're going to do this, huh? This is how it's going to be? And, you know, we pulled into an old logging road there, and uh, he said, well, what I want you to do is I want you to get out of this truck right now, and I want you to go tell your brothers what you decided. Out of the wood line, you know, a couple of robed clansmen stepped out. And I knew all three of them that were out there. I, I trained them all. All three of them I trained. And uh, I was like, let's get this over with. And I stepped out, and we just went to tussling. And, you know, it was just... You know, they, they, they roughed me up pretty good to kick my That was the last I ever heard of them. I mean, I've had some threats since then, you know, like uh, race trader. They called me an N-word lover. But, I mean, other than, than the, the physical altercation, some bumps and bruises, scrapes and things of that nature, just words. But, you know, words can't hurt me unless I let them. So I just know that I'm on a path that's been set out for me by a higher force. I think there's times when I still need to learn to forgive myself. Um, and that's really a slice of humble pie to, to have to eat that and, and to say that. But by, you know, by learning that it helps me to, to get over it and, and to forgive myself. I, I have to forgive myself. I have to forgive, you know, my parents, you know, they... They did the best they could, I, I, I assume. Hardest thing about forgiveness is, uh, if, you, if you ever heard the serenity prayer, you know, Lord help me to accept the things I cannot change, and, and things, and, you know, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The hardest thing in that entire prayer, the hardest word, is acceptance. To accept the fact that, you know, things happened to me that didn't happen to other people, but I chose those those paths in life. Once I learned to take accountability, accountability for me is is it's it's important because it it lets me know that I have owned everything in my past that I'm ashamed of, that I've done wrong, that I've done right, and that I am proud of together, you know, and, and painted the the bold picture of who I was and who I'm trying to be and, and working towards being. Like I said, I just had to forgive myself and, and I'm not 100% there yet, but I'm steadily moving to that point. You know, I mean, by giving back to the community, uh, I work with a, a community outreach church here in, in the town that I live in. It's called The Haven. Um, and, you know, that was just, that was really important for my recovery, both from alcohol and drugs. You know, just sit down and just open the door to conversation. You know, a conversation with somebody is the most powerful weapon you have. Um, you can sit around and let people tell you how to think all day, but, you know, there's nobody in the world that could ever change my opinion about Haval.
nothing that would happen. I consider him one of my nearest and dearest friends. If anything, I feel like, you know, I, I need forgiveness from him. Chris and Haval have become the best of friends. And they have nothing but admiration for each other. Haval volunteers his time at the, at the VA to know that, that the place that he chose to give back was so that he improved the quality of life for my fellow veteran. That made him a hero to me. And he does it for, for, for the love of just America. You know, I, I love America with all my heart. And to me, I think Dr. Haval, he should, he should be the, the face of this country, really. I mean, like, because he, he identifies and embodies everything that this country is supposed to be. Haval loves the country that opened its arms to his family. He knows that he wouldn't have been able to do it without the people that have helped his family along the way. I mean, you know... Uh, you know, like, we have this perception in America that, you know, we all have to, like, you know, work very hard and we can do it, you know, by working very hard and doing everything we can. But that's not the way to our success. You know, I tell people, like, I'm a product of the indirect and direct act of kindness of America. I mean, remember, I came here post 9-11 as a Muslim refugee, Literally within two weeks of the attack, and the next thing I know, the Southern Christian Church, member of Episcopal Church, you know, and also Episcopal Church, they came here and they welcomed my family. And I'm like looking at this, I'm like, I mean, I can't believe that these Americans came and helped us. And I never experienced anything like that in the world. Like, this is what makes this country special. If these people believed in me, and it was selfless in their interest to really help me become who I am, like, here I am, I'm a, you know, I'm a cardiology fellow at Emory. My brother is a general surgery resident at East Tennessee University. We didn't make it because we only worked hard. We made it because we had people also helped us along the way. And these are the Americans who did it. So now is only, the least I can do is to give back. Haval understands how far Chris has come and couldn't be more proud. You know, and... You know, like, Chris has given me a lot of credit, but honestly, it's like, I tell people, like, I came to this country as a refugee, and I started from zero and became now, like, what, went from zero to 90 out of 100. Chris, you know, went from zero, maybe from when he started like me, he went to negative 100, and now he's back to one. He doesn't get that much credit as me because I am at 90, he's at one, but he made much more faster progress than I did with what he went through, like, with his life, so... It's my job to show the people, like, hey, like, as you much have seen my successes, don't forget about the success and progress in people like Chris because they actually made a faster and much more severe progress than I did. Chris and Haval try to keep in touch, and they see each other about once a month. Their friendship has become natural, not forced, and it's meant to be an example to those around them that if someone like Chris and someone like Haval can become best friends... What does that mean for the rest of us? What should our perspective be about those who are different from us? I'm a Christian, he's a Muslim, but both of our books tell us that we're supposed to lift each other up. And, you know, 
Two completely different religions. I don't care if he's a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, or a Christian. He's my brother and my fellow man. And, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to lift each other up, motivate and support, and we're going we're gonna to spread that as a contagion. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. Great job on that, Faith, and what a beautiful story. Please, if you like, share this story with friends. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. It'll be up there on our website. Share it near and far. And by the way, while you're there, sign up for our newsletter, and you'll get our five best stories each week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and share it with friends. And what a story about love about compassion, about people from two different places coming together, and in the end, about how love triumphs over hate every time. And my goodness, Chris Buckley has taken a long road, and so has Haval Mohammed Kelly. And this, by the way, folks, is a quintessentially American story. And the media doesn't want to tell you these stories, folks, because we're getting along each and every day in this great country, intermarrying, taking care of one another, But of course, what the media wants to do always is find the outlier, find the hate, and put a camera close to it, and in the end, spread it. Chris Buckley's story, Haval Muhammad Kelly's story, two friends, their friendship, a blossoming and growing one here on Our American Stories. ¶¶ 